0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome
1: to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new films and theaters and then connects them to films from days gone by and new-to-you classics. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax with The Chronicle Herald. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're taking a look at those men, women, and kids in tights. Incredibles 2 are back from Pixar, and they're up to uh, more hijinks and more adventures, and we'll have more on them right after this.
2: So, Stephen, here we are again uh, talking about the movies. So glad to be sitting opposite you, opposite you to discuss The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2, and Pixar films in general. Uh, It is a, uh, this is such a pleasure to rewatch these movies. And uh, I don't know that I've given them quite enough credit over the years. Just when you take them as a whole, sure, there have been a few that have not met the standard of the best of the bunch. But when you take them, you know, when you think about the amount of films since their first one, since their first full length, which was Toy Story uh, 1995, it is remarkable. The what they've achieved, and going right up to Coco from last year, and now Incredibles two. I mean, there are some incredible (laughs) uh, films in this run that you won't um, that we'll we'll be watching, and our kids, the grandkids. I mean, the the uh, the generations are going to appreciate this the storytelling from these people uh, in ways that uh, I think the way we look back at the, uh, you know, the Disney, the golden age of Disney, I think people are going to be looking back at, at some of these Pixar movies in the same light, uh, you know, a hundred years hence. At least I, I hope so, because I, I think that they do amazing work when they are really, when they are really on the money. It is, it's remarkable. Uh, and I think that The Incredibles from 2004 – and Incredibles 2 from this year, both written and directed by Brad Bird. This is actually one of the few cases where the director is the writer on these films. Usually it's sort of a group of people, a group of directors or group of writers. But um, Brad Bird does amazing work. And I, I, I find it fascinating to think about how when The Incredibles came out in 2004, it was very much at the beginning of the sort of current superhero craze. And now the sequel arrives 14 years later in storytelling time, it happens right after like the same, it starts the same day that the original film ends. So it's the continuity there is very direct, but, um, You know, here we have uh, the story of a sort of family of superheroes, which hasn't really been done in superhero movies and, say, from Marvel. They've tried to do them with the Fantastic Four, which they have largely been unsuccessful with. But when I watch The Incredibles, all I can think is, you know, all you have to do is look at this to to, to see how Fantastic Four could be done and could be done really well.
1: Yeah, because it's obviously set in a retro path, futuristic past, roughly late 50s, early 60s sort of Eisenhower, E. Kennedy, New Camelot kind of era, but they don't really zero in on that too much. It's it's not very specific. It's a very self-contained kind of world. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of think that, you know, maybe a Fantastic Four had gone back to the roots of the comic uh, and and kept some of the humor that was in there as well as that kind of Uh, Retro styling that maybe they would have had something, but they they keep screwing it up. They can't do anything with that franchise. And uh, you know the the Incredibles kind of beat them at their own game. Obviously, it's it's animated. It's you know it leans more heavily into comedy than than certainly than a Fantastic Four movie ever would. But uh, but clearly, it you know it also has a lot of heart to it, which of course was completely missing from from all of those uh, Fantastic Four movies. And you know considering that. The whole idea of, of, Fantastic Four was that, you know, here was like the kind of the first superhero family, even though, you know, it's, they weren't all, you know, parents and children. It was, uh, you know, Mr. Fantastic and Sue Storm, plus the thing who's kind of like an overgrown kid anyway. He's and, like and, the and, Uncle Ben. Yeah. Right? He is the, and yeah. Johnny Storm um, or Johnny Blake. <laughs>
2: jo- Johnny Storm. Yeah. Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, who's, who's kind of like the angry adolescent, you know, teenager or whatever. Um you know that dynamic was completely lost um, in in the feature film. So and here it's preserved so incredibly well, and uh, and you know just slightly touched up a little bit to avoid any copyright infringement. Yeah, yeah but there's a lot of similarities. <laughs> but there are a lot of similarities, yeah. and it, it, it's interesting. I mean the first the first Incredibles uh, came out. It was Brad Bird's first time working with Pixar. He was kind of an outsider. I mean he had that background of working with The Simpsons and had built up a name kind of that way uh but it was interesting that he was you know not somebody from the inside i always kind of wonder what it was like cuz i remember reading stories at the time uh because it was kind of the team that had been that had been groomed by by lassiter john lassiter the founder of pixar or co-founder um who'd been grooming this team of writers and directors and and so on to kind of take on these these films and then they bring in this guy from the outside to do something that was quite unlike anything they'd done up to that time you know to do something that that leaned heavily on kind of outside influences in a way that maybe the previous films hadn't so much um and and it was a runaway hit it was just the right thing to do And it, it, it's, it's funny that they haven't done more of that in the like brad bird has obviously come back he came back to do ratatouille and now incredibles 2 um but aside from him it's been mostly this kind of self-contained universe over there at Pixar and obviously there have been some power struggles and and, and Laster, of course is on the outs after some uh, some some inappropriate behavior on his part and and uh it's it, it, it'll, i'm curious to see where the company's headed from here on in obviously Incredibles 2 is a good sign that uh the next generation of, of Pixar people will will, will have uh, something strong to go on coco as well i think is a is a good indicator um but uh, you mentioned Disney, and of course, it you know it is part of the Disney Empire now yeah, it, since
2: 2006.
1: Yeah, um, I think it originally it started as kind of like a small sub department at Lucasfilm at down at the Skywalker Ranch, I think, and uh, and then uh, was Steve Jobs got involved uh, to some degree uh, in in sort of helping to run the company, and then of course Disney just took over the whole thing. Um, those uh, those early shorts, of course, showed the promise of. of uh, of what was to be with uh, this company. Uh, But, uh, you know, and and when the first feature came out with Toy Story, you know, people were saying, well, who's going to want to watch a full-length, computer animated film. I mean, that's just crazy. But of course, that's what people said when Snow White came out. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, it was a runaway hit. You know, yeah. it was- And it was ri- so well-written. And, yeah. And they and have- act, And acted. And, and, and they have
2: done a really great job in creating these self-contained stories. They haven't been as successful with their sequels, but at the same time, all you have to do is look at Toy Story because Toy Story 2 and 3 were both equally well-made, if not as good, as maybe even better than the original. Uh, and here we have Incredibles 2, which re- manages 14 years later to recapture the same energy, this, the same sense of fun that the original film had. Uh, you know, less so the Cars movie, uh, movies, uh, you know, less so some of the other uh, films where they have, they've gone back to the well, um, you know, Monsters University, and, and it hasn't quite felt as much as... Much as the, the inspiration isn't quite as, as tight, though, though, you know, as a passable Saturday morning entertainment, I, I mean, I think almost all of their movies are are worth seeing. But it's funny to think that the stuff that they've done that has been like groundbreaking, like the great storytelling in any form, whether it was live action or not, um, is it, that that bar is so high that when they make something that's just passable, you're kind of like, well, what the hell Pixar? You know, it's almost like their standards. <laughs> the standards are so high that you, we, we are more critical
1: of the ones that aren't uh, awesome even though it's still probably going to be better than your average Ice Age or Shrek movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, they certainly have their competition. The, the It seems like every major studio has aligned themselves with some sort of um, digital animated uh, studio of some sort. But Pixar seems to be the only one of the bunch that really is, and this is why I said it was, it was uh, intriguing when you mentioned Disney, because... You know, if you look at Disney's history, he would build on the success of every film and push things further with each project because things there'd be changes in technology. You know, you look at the shorts and we introduced the multi-plane camera, and um, you know, new stuff. The Xerox machine came in and they made use of that in terms of reproducing cells and things, and uh, and the art started to look more modern and everything. And he was always pushing forward, and like you know, he really knew how to build on the strengths of what they'd done previously and take it further. And, and I think Pixar is. Using that model, exactly. I mean, if you go back, I mean, Toy Story is still a fun movie, but if you watch it, it looks maybe a little antiseptic, um, maybe a little too clean, a little too barren, a little too, the humans in the film look a little strange. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And even to a certain degree in Toy Story 2, because I just watched that again for the first time in ages. And, you know, but then you compare that to like Ratatouille and how they've figured out a way to make human characters seem cartoony but also believable at the same time and yeah. it, it's 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 a tough thing uh a lot of studios have not managed to do that in right. a in, in a believable way and then uh the other thing is that, of course then disney even though they're affiliated uh disney's was copying copying their style and to the point where it's sometimes it's hard to tell them apart uh you know like is moana a pix a pixar film or is it a disney film or, you know or brave is that a pixar film or a disney film um and, uh, the lines have been getting more and more blurred over the years. Like, you know, Wreck-It Ralph could just as easily be a Pixar movie as it is yeah. a Disney film. I don't know how it works on the corporate level, but it seems the differences between the two, you know, since they've all gone fully digital, um, are kind of hard to discern that, you know, there is a heavy emphasis on humor now in Disney films that, uh, there may not have been, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, to the same degree. And, uh, I think overall it's for the better. I mean, I, I think a lot of those Disney films like Tangled and Wreck-It Ralph are actually probably, you know, the Pixar has become the tide that lifts all boats, as it were, as far as the the Disney line goes. Moana is another film. That yeah, I think a yeah, fun.
2: Moana was pretty great. And it felt as much a musical like in the standard of the old-fashioned musical animations, uh, which is what I, I think I liked about Moana. Brave, you know, is a Pixar film. And that's one where in... Uh, I think her, it is, she's a, the, the lead characters are princess. So that's what makes it almost feel like it fits in with the Disney model, but she's so, uh, resistant of her role being married off because, uh, to make, make sure peace between the clans is maintained. And she, she absolutely refused to participate in this to the point where there is a contest of the men of the, of the, <laughs> the clans to, to win her hand. And she, takes part in the contest herself in archery and she beats everybody. And then, and, and there's that. So there's that part of it that feels like, okay, this could be a Disney, she could be a Disney princess, but really she's quite different. And then there's the extraordinary detail in the uh, the visuals, which is another thing that that I think identifies a Pixar movie, especially in the last, oh, 10 years or so, beyond a lot of these other pretenders, is like uh, just the look of her hair uh the character's hair uh um is is just remarkable like you could just you just get hypnotized by every like loose strand it's really really impressive stuff uh but yeah no i i I hear what you're saying it's interesting the 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 world we arrive in and um and and you know to some degree uh I think watching incredibles again, which I did in advance of having seen the sequel uh what you're talking about of. of of it being a little spare, a little barren. Uh, That was the case also when watching Incredibles from 2004, some of the city scenes, it looks like the backgrounds are quite just kind of like, they're almost like placeholders. They don't have a lot of detail. Whereas now they have figured out the way in which they can, um, uh, you know, focus in on the foreground instead of the background. And then you have this kind of like visual effect of like things being out of focus in the background, or if there isn't stuff is in focus in the background, it's hyper detailed. So you're, just everything has a level of photorealism, which is wonderful and incredible, but it's also not, um, it doesn't follow into the uncanny valley. So I, yes. it's rare that you feel kind of that, that that you know, feeling in the pit of your stomach when you watch the Polar Express, for
1: instance. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, I don't, well, yeah, there's, I don't think there's any mocap involved in any of the, the Pixar titles, which is another thing that thankfully sets them apart. Um, there's none, none, none that comes to mind anyway, but... Uh, it, it seems like their cinematic ambitions were pretty high from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at their second film, A Bug's Life, um, and you know, the, so their second film out, they're making a, an animated remake of The Seven Samurai slash The Magnificent Seven with bugs. And you know, so uh, right off the bat, they're kind of laying all their cinematic film nerd cards on the table right there. It's like... You know, for for an audience of kids that won't have a clue who Yule Brenner or uh, Toshiro Mifune are. <laughs> but, you know, here we are um, with this, you know, callback to those those great films uh, and uh, and doing it remarkably well. But again, you, you know, that, again, that looks like a fairly antiseptic universe compared to what we've got now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I only looked at clips from A Bug's Life prior to this, but, um, you know, it's still entertaining, still a lot of humor. I love the 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 pill bug the tumbling pill bugs Mm -hmm. and you know there's there's still a lot of great you know jokes The the ladybug who has the very manly voice and all that kind of stuff i mean there there, there's a lot of great stuff in it um you know i always kind of wonder if they'll ever revise these films and give them you know do the kind of the george lucas treatment and gritty them up or something like that and go back i i don't think so i think they but i always kind of wonder like well you know they're they're digital they could easily go back and 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 mess with them and Polish them Update up. Update them. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's possible. But I, I, I don't, yeah. I'm not recommending it by the way. I just yeah. kind of wonder like, you know, what, what is there down the road for, for these films and for this uh, catalog? So,
2: um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about the look of the films, but at, at its core, it's the storytelling and the characters that make yes. these films live and breathe, uh, you know, and they set themselves a really high standard from the get go. OK, we're going to do a, a movie with the anthropomorphizing of toys, bring them to life so you care about them. And we're going to choose these recognizable voice actors to do. I mean, I've never been a fan of Tim, Tim Allen, but he will always be kind of a god thanks to Buzz Lightyear. Uh. <laughs> And then you're gonna we're gonna go to insects and then back to toys and the monsters and fish and cars and rats and robots and dogs and eventually even feelings are gonna be created. <laughs> I mean that's it's it's astonishing and these movies these storytelling is is uh, is incredible. Uh, I uh, I keep going back to that word, but I can't help it. It is yeah. it, these are these are really really wonderful stories and and for those for anyone who hasn't seen The Incredibles, it's basically it's a family of superheroes. Elastigirl, played by Holly Hunter, Mr. Incredible played by Craig T. Nelson, who was I mean, these, this casting is is excellent. Uh, and they're parents of Teen, uh Violet, uh Sarah Vowell and fantastic,
1: uh, yeah. She's yeah. she's so good. She's so good. Someone who's not even, you know, technically an actor really, but but she just embodies that character so, oh, yeah. so possibly well.
2: Uh, then there's tween dash played by Spencer Fox in the original and Huck Milner in, in number two and Jack Jack the baby who uh, really shines in the second film. <laughs> He's kind of a supporting character in the first one, but the second one, uh, the discovery that he has actual powers really messes things up for uh, Bob, Mr. Incredible when he is left at home after Elastigirl gets a new gig, uh, hoping to promote superheroes and, and do good. Uh, in in the hope that superheroes will be allowed back into the public sphere again, because they have all been uh, declared illegal, and uh, the events of the first film didn't help things much, because uh, Incred- the Incredibles did get on their costumes and try to protect the world from Syndrome, uh, <laughs> but uh, but that didn't go too well in terms of of uh, you know public damage to the city, and uh, oh, and there's a few other great characters here. We got Frozone, uh, played by Samuel L. Jackson, Bob's good buddy the super pal Um, and uh, and then there's Edna Mode a basically an Edith head alike who designs all their costumes and voiced by writer director Brad Bird uh, and I love Edna. I think everyone loves Edna. I'd like to see a movie, even a TV series, just about her—like what not to wear with Edna. <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I kind of wish there was more of Edna in Incredibles too, but I, I guess she kind of serves her purpose story-wise. And 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 Brad Bird probably didn't want to steal too much of the spotlight away from the other characters, but but that is a real standout character. Just and and very much, you know, looks kind of yeah like Edith head or maybe a bit of Ruth Gordon or something in in a Louise Brooks wig or something i don't know how you want to describe her but <laughs> definitely a standout comic relief character but i'm guessing for some people uh, a little of her goes a long way i suppose but i really enjoy that character and um and of course we have uh the the deavers uh winston voiced by Bob Odenkirk and looking very much like Bob Odenkirk. Uh, yeah. Funny that it's, it's, it's interesting that they actually decided to make him look like the guy who's doing the voice to a certain degree. And uh, of course, is a tech magnet who uh, wants to uh, make superheroes great again. Yeah. And, um, you know, recruits specifically Elastigirl, uh, you know, because she, she's obviously a little less, uh, causes a lo- little less damage than her husband. And, you know, also is kind of like the friendly face of, of superheroes and probably less cantankerous to deal with, I'm guessing. And and then uh, we've got his sister voiced by Catherine Keener, who's kind of like the brains behind his outfit. Yeah. Who um, seems to have some sort of hidden agenda, as it turns out. So um, She is, her voice is unmistakable. Like, yeah. Like, it's so great to hear her in this. Although it's funny because every time I look at her, I thought it was uh, Suzanne Plachette because <laughs> that's basically what she looks like. Right. And, yeah. and Catherine Keener is kind of giving her a, a husky voice. Sure. So I feel like, I feel like secretly it's just a cartoon version of Suzanne Pluchette yeah. from the Bob Newhart show. Uh, um, and, uh, and they're curious, they're kind of like, the. they're kind of keeping the plot in motion as it were and you're kind of wondering what they're up to and what the real plan for the, from the Deavers is because of course we have this super villain, uh, the screen, um, uh, not, the screenslaver. There we go. Screenslaver. Yeah, who's uh, basically using TVs to uh, hypnotize people and bend them to his will, and uh, and that becomes our, our big nemesis that uh, Elastigirl sets out after over the course of the film. So it's it's got an interesting, even though it's set in this mythical kind of late fifties, early sixties. It's got a very au courant kind of theme of people being hypnotized by uh you know and not an entirely new idea of course uh even then or now but uh the idea that people are being kind of hypnotized by the the tv sets yeah. and so on um yeah yeah and so and- it makes a current and i think there's a nod to the outer limits at some point one of the characters is watching the outer limits on tv uh in in incredible so it's interesting that it's an animated world, but they're watching real world TV shows like Outer Limits. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it actually at, at the screening I was at, they had a sign up saying there's, a, there's like a, a light show that takes place and I can think of it right now during the course of the film that could be, uh, you know, trigger people who have epileptic uh, issues, uh, which is something I, I don't think they expected. And then clearly the signs up at the screenings uh, uh, must have been as a result of someone having a bad reaction
1: to some of the stuff that goes on. The visuals are quite intense in places. I'm guessing that probably came down from higher up, uh, it, just, it gets very stroby. Yes, it's pretty much yeah. like that. Uh, was it Pokemon? Yes. <laughs> back in the nineties, uh, to the point where I think both Simpsons and and uh, South Park made fun of the whole fact yep. that a Pokemon show is causing people to have uh, seizures. Yeah, um, but it's the same effect. It's just, and you know, with the co- computer animation, it's that much more intense. Um, there's a scene where uh, and uh, where Elastigirl kind of honing in on uh, Screen Slaver's lair. And he's actually got a Faraday cage. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's like the same sort of thing that uh, Gene Hackman has in Enemy of the State. Oh, okay, you know, which is supposed to be isolate you from, you know, surveillance and static and uh-huh. all this kind of stuff. And and so and yeah. So he's got. and It's not they don't even mention it in the plot. I just kind of noticed it that he you know he had this Faraday cage within his uh, lair with all his equipment in it. And that's when uh, she gets um, you know snapped by the by the pulsing and strobing uh, effect that that we see in the film well obviously we've got a lot we can say about Incredibles too. so I think we'll take a break right now and come back to it in a few minutes and we'll be right with you
0: the f-bombing New York Times bestsellers Thug Kitchen Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author Julia Tertian the polite and proper great British bake-offs food stylist what do they all have in common they're all the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture and they've all been guests on the Food Podcast, a village soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson.
1: I guess it is interesting to note that that these films become more the worlds within them become more complex and more detailed as as uh, these Pixar films go along because they have more people working on them, the the technology, that they've uh, developed along the way makes it easier for them to, to make these films, even though there's still a ton of work that goes into them. Uh, you know, every bit of detail, the shading and the, and the, the world creating that they do on these films and, and uh, Incredibles two is, is, is no exception. I, I found myself, and and maybe even to the point of distraction, like noticing the buildings and the ads in the background and the cars, uh, they really went heavy on cars in this mm-hmm. film. The it's, design stuff is, is amazing. Uh, it seemed like every yeah. vehicle was like a unique and distinct automobile <laughs> for the course of the film. Uh, until we get the, uh, the incredible mobile which shows up later in the film, which is a real treat. It kind of takes the, the idea of like the James Bond, Aston Martin to the, to the nth degree. Um, but, but I, you know, that's another thing that sets these films apart. The, the level of detail that goes into creating these worlds is so much higher than, uh, than what we get in some of these other films uh, from, you know, the thing the things from, you know, from these kind of, kind of slick looking Dr. Seuss animated films to, you know, the Ice Age films and so on. And, yeah. you know, they still have a lot of animators who like work on hair detail and that kind of thing. But, but. There's a certain character about these that, that that really sets him apart. Um, you know, Wally is certainly full of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, as he's cleaning up trash on this world with his uh his one given task that he has. Uh and uh but it's you know, it, it always it's always tactile. It always has an organic kind of look to it, at least these days compared to, to the the first handful of films. Uh, you know, Ratatouille had a had a feel of kind of this kind of dirty, grungy Paris to it that, uh, that really made it feel lived in Yeah, that made that film a real treat. Ratatouille was one of my favorites actually from
2: the, although we will save our list of favorites for the very end, uh, from the, uh, Pixar, uh, catalog. But, uh, it was for many years, one of my favorites. I revisited it for this conversation and I still really like it. Like it's just barely inching outside of my top three. Um, but, uh, it is uh, the thing about it that struck me is, I mean, it's a terrific story about creativity and how you should reach for for things that you believe you should, you want to be part of that makes that that feeds you, that your passions. You should reach for them whatever your place is in life, and uh, and that's kind of an amazing thing. But the film's realism in terms of the depiction of of uh, hordes, swarms what's the what's the, the the plural noun for rats uh it is it's actually kind of <laughs> creepy when you see a bunch of rats like all over the floor uh all over this kitchen uh, a plague in, of rats a huh? play- <laughs> yeah it is uh it, it's it, and and the the film is actually very frenetic there's lots of chase sequences in the film which i think makes for great physical comedy but uh but in retrospect and i think i might have thought of this when i first saw it was like oh man if you have a trouble if you have trouble with rats <laughs> it is it's a little hard to watch in places
1: yeah the, the, you can only make rats so cute yes I think. that's the thing. <laughs> that's, but you know they, at least they made one at least Remy, the, the main one uh, voiced by patton Oswalt, is is a is a is a good character yeah and, you know the, the they make a rat as about charming as, as you could, I mm-hmm. suppose. In, in in this case, um, and Peter O'Toole as the
2: as the uh, the critic. Boy, he's amazing in this. That is a, is a great character. He is terrific. This.
1: That is some of their best voice casting is in Ratatouille. With some completely you know, sort of unexpected choices. Uh, you've got um, Brad Garrett, I think, from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from Everybody Loves Raymond, plays the uh, soon to be deceased chef or head owner of of, of the restaurant and. And he turns in, in, a, in a great performance. Uh, and it, the the love of food, it, it, it seems like a very adult topic. And maybe this is one of the first uh, Pixar films where we really, really see some adult concerns mm-hmm. becoming part of the story. And I, I don't know that they're consciously trying to... You know, oh, this is a film has something for everybody, which is what you can say about these movies, that they do appeal to a wide audience. And that's why they've been so, so successful, that that they do read, you know, adults can enjoy these films as much as kids. Um, and in some cases, adults can enjoy some of these films more than kids. And in some cases, like, say, the Cars movies, the kids get way more out of them than the adults do. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like Ratatouille is one of the first films in the Pixar line where maybe the adult uh, aspects of the story kind of overshadow the more child-friendly aspects of the story or, you know, take take further precedence. And, and you know, I think I really appreciated that at the time. I remember go, I actually remember, like, going to see this at the theater in Bridgewater. I just happened to be on the South Shore stuck there with nothing to do for a night. So, oh, I'll go see Ratatouille at the uh, the multiplex such as it was in, in Bridgewater. And, uh, you know, I'm just really, A, being impressed by you know how it didn't uh, didn't pull back at stuff that might go over the heads of of younger viewers, and uh, also how hungry it made me. <laughs> I, I didn't yeah. know that a cartoon would make me, uh, you know, make me salivate so much. But uh, the, the you know the, the food aspects of it are are really nicely handled as well yeah. as the, the character stuff and the and the storyline of Alfredo um, Linguini <laughs> in his uh, quest for. For uh, culinary greatness, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no, it is. It's a wonderful film, and as I said, it just barely missed out on my my list of of great uh, great films from these uh, my favorites, I should say, from from the catalog. Uh, but I also wanted to mention to bring it back to um, Incredibles yes, uh, that that. Uh, that I really liked how it is and, and the style of it. You kept, you mentioned that it's set probably in the sixties, early sixties, sometime, and it's got a little bit of that like. Rat Pack kind of uh, suave and mid-century modern in the furniture and and design and stuff. And, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that it's as, I mean, it is a superhero story, but it's also very indebted to like early James Bond and that kind of thing. There's a definite espionage kind of quality to it and all of that. Um, and I love that it feels like this one feels very much like politically set in the heart of the Mad Men generation because they've got this self-conscious play on gender roles with Bob having to stay home with the kids and uh, Elastigirl um, having to uh to go out and and you know uh helen having to uh earn the bring home the the bacon uh and uh, of course his his struggles with that thinking that he can handle everything because he's mr incredible and and he's the he's been the the superhero guy and and uh, i actually read a few criticisms of that saying that well you know uh this felt very Uh, it felt antiquated. I, I, the the reason that I wasn't bothered by that at all is because I very much recognize that this, it's a definite play on the, the mores of the era. Yeah. And I, I mean, there are parts that do feel like the, like you mentioned, the screen slaver feels more contemporary, but there's lots of parts that feels like, oh, we're making, we're playing with the way people behaved in the 60s and and their values at that time. And, uh, and I, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's really clever. And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's, I think, You need to give it more credit, and I think sometimes animated films don't get the kind of serious – they don't get taken as seriously as maybe uh, live-action films, even though they're dealing with themes on a very similar level or as sophisticated as live-action. And and I also wanted to give a shout-out in that film particularly, and I guess in the first Incredibles to the composer, Michael Giacchino whose score in the first film was indebted to John Barry. And then that su- suave style, I think, is in this one. But it's pumped up with a lot of horns,
1: bringing sort of a Henry Mancini element to it. Oh, yeah. So it's just it's just great fun. And then, of course, over the end credits, you get like sort of made-up theme songs for some of the characters. <laughs> right. You know, Frozone's got a very kind of cool, almost sort of Shaft-esque theme song. Although, right. obviously, they can't go into full-on... Isaac Hayes territory because it doesn't really suit the period, but but it's there are elements of that there and and you know it does it does have a lot of fun with with kind of our notions of superheroes now versus the nineteen sixties mm-hmm. uh, idea of superheroes and their invulnerability and all that kind of thing um, and yeah like you said that you can't criticize it for for having you know portraying sixties ideas of masculinity and 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 that whole. You know the Mad Men swinging lounge era, uh-huh. you know space age bachelor pad kind of period, because you know those were the attitudes that were in place, and the film actually does a pretty good job at at uh, kind of puncturing those and showing us showing us for what they really are. Um, they, Maybe we, people are just upset because they think,
2: oh, this is kids are going to watch this and they're not going to get this. And somehow they're going to absorb the, the, the attitudes of these characters, especially if they're superheroes that like, there is, there is like, oh, well we can't, we we can't assume that it's as complex as it is, but I mean, you know, give kids and the people making the movie more credit than that. I think.
1: Yeah. I, I think they, they're going to realize that, that things were different in the past. And, and that, uh, and, and the film certainly does. And, uh, allows us to view it with modern eyes and but also kind of portray it in a not a realistic light maybe but but certainly in a in a knowing and and sympathetic light um and of course we also have evelyn um deaver with the company and, and and her being kind of the brains behind everything that's that's happening in terms of uh their company and and uh, wanting to stay out of this the spotlight but also you know wishing that she would get the credit for, for her work at the same time. I mean, she's a fascinating character, actually. Like, I, I really want to go back and watch it and spend more time just focusing on her, even when she's just in the background mm-hmm. uh, observing. Because, I, I, you know, that's the thing. is like these films are designed for maximum rewatchability. Yeah. Because there's always things happening in the background, uh, you know, you're watching the main characters, but then there are other characters reacting to the other characters uh-huh. that you may not pick, you know, pick up on right away. And you see how far they can carry those character traits. Uh, you know, certainly I noticed that watching uh, toy story two uh, or rewatching it on the weekend and, you know, seeing what Mr. Potato head or, or slinky dog or whatever are doing in the background while Woody's flailing about and yelling uh, or, or what have you. And, um, or, you know, looking at things like the, the, the piles of actual uh, board games on the shelves—you know, where you actually see a copy of Candyland and Operation <laughs> and so on right. sitting on the shelf—you uh, know, just in the background and so on. Um, you know, the, the, they are designed to kind of fill your eye to the max, and you yeah. can't take it all in all at once. And the, some of the
2: uh, some of the animators that they will use elements from one movie and put them in hide them like Easter eggs in other movies like the uh the the pizza delivery truck uh from the Toy Story movies shows up apparently in other movies. I I haven't I can't remember where, but I, I have I know that they show up different places and and there are these sort of callbacks. Uh and
1: I man, I think the Oh film- yeah that, that pizza delivery truck is in um, it's like the Hitchcock cameo. I think it's in every film except go. for maybe Good Dinosaur.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: uh, actually, no, it isn't. good. I think it does show up. Uh, I think they show like, like the me- meteors in outer space or something. Okay. Like that. And there's actually one shaped like the p. It's just it's just, <laughs> it's just uh, monotone. It's, it's, right. It's the only one, but you know, it's one of those like blinking you'll miss it kind of things but i should have known steven that you would know well i you know to be fair i did like i was curious about it myself (laughs) okay i know that that truck shows up it even shows up in like i think in finding dory like in the because it well actually it it shows up as itself i think in in finding dory but in finding nemo i Mm. think i think somewhere you see like a sunken abandoned version of it sitting on the ocean floor at some point surprised yeah but it does show up everywhere. And then the hardest one to spot, I think is an inside out. Okay. Um, where it's like contained within some glowing orb in the sort of the visualized brain or whatever. And and like, you really, if you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't notice it would just be a right. yellow blob. But right. Apparently it is there somewhere. Um, yeah. I
2: wanted to say a few things also. Uh, I've about another one of the catalog that didn't make it my top three. And that's Coco, which I, uh, I, I it's on on uh, Netflix now in Canada and I really recommend people watch it it's it's a real heartbreaker but it's it's one of those tear jerkers that earns its tears, uh, telling the story of multiple generations of uh, a Mexican family, and this is also a groundbreaker for the fact that it's an entirely Latino cast, and uh, it's, you know, it's a story about this kid who wants to be a musician, but his family's very anti-music due to the fact that his great-great-grandfather ran off, uh, abandoning his great-great-grandmother, and uh, and then he starts to realize that this, this famous musician might be his great-great-grandfather, mm. that he might be destined to be a great musician, uh, and this is all happening in the real world, but in fact, he crosses over on the day of the dead. He crosses over into the land of the dead. Much of the action takes place in this incredible city of uh, of skeletons, and uh, and it's it's a uh, it's a lot less morbid than it might seem. Uh, <laughs> it's a uh, it's actually quite wonderful, quite life affirming, and uh, and I think. You know, a lot of these movies, a lot of these stories, certainly the Toy Stories movies double down on this, this theme of, like, growing up and and childhood versus adulthood versus old age and coming to terms with, with getting older. Uh, that seems to come back again and again in these stories, certainly. And then, of course, family uh, themes as well. Um, I'm not, like, I mean, I recognize that they're beloved Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, but I'm not as in love with those movies as maybe some of them. But I, I recognize... You know, it's, that feels to me like more of a Disney movie because it's about parents being separated from their yeah. or kids being separated from their parents, which seems to me like a theme that they've done enough. But, um, but yeah, I do see that there are some, like, there is a bedrock of, of thematic storytelling that goes on in these movies that you watch a bunch of them in a row and you go, oh, yeah, they're kind of dealing with a lot of the same stuff. But they're dealing with it very well and very uh, thoughtfully.
1: Yeah, well, Coco is some of the best world building we've seen to date in um – uh, in, in the Pixar films. I mean, the the Incredibles films, I mean, they look great. They do capture that late 50s, early 60s, space age kind of universe really well, but that's like a world that we know and have seen before. And so, you know, we've always seen cars with fins on them and, you know, those kind of retro styles and everything like that. Like, it's it feels very familiar to us. But Coco was like a whole new universe uh, in, a, in a way that, uh, you know... M- you know, maybe the first, maybe Monsters, Inc., I mean, with the world of the monsters and their whole universe was kind of kind of clever and cool, but 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 Coco goes way beyond that in terms of what it creates with the land of the dead and so on. I kind of wish it gave some credit to uh, the Grim Fandango video game, which is kind of a similar design with the, the, the Day of the Dead skeletons okay. involved in a mystery and lost souls and that kind of thing. Um, I think it's more of a stylistic thing than an actual plot similarity, but... Uh, but it, you know that's I kept thinking of that. My brain kept going back to Grim Fandango, the video game, which is an amazing game, by the way. If you ever, <laughs> um, you know, it's like an adventure game, but it's very comedic and creates this very funny world in the in the land of the dead. So uh, you know, Coco is sort of similar in that regard, but. Um, but of course goes way above and beyond yeah. in terms of what it creates. There was another animated uh, film set in that
2: it, it was uh, the like, book of life. Book of life. Yeah. Which I don't know as well, but uh, I just feel like this is, this is entirely its own thing. I, uh, and I'm, I, you know, if, if this is what Pixar is going to do with their self-contained, you know, into, it, rather than their sequels, I feel like they're still very much on the right track. Like this is a, this is a sign of, of of the
1: continuing greatness of the work that they're doing. Yeah, and I'd like to see them maybe continue making things a bit more musical, uh, as it were. I mean, there are songs connected with these films, as there are with all animated films, not just Disney, but uh, but other films as well. You know, we, you've got a friend in me, Randy yeah, Newman. Randy Newman, um, his whole career got revived
2: <laughs> thanks to these movies.
1: No kidding. And uh and uh I'm trying to think of some. Drawing a blank now, all of a sudden, but I know there are other songs associated with some of these films, but, but Coco really doubles down on the whole musical content. And I think they've tried to leave the more musical thing to Disney as it were, but I don't see why they couldn't go more in that direction as well. totally.
2: All right. So now we get to the portion of the show where we talk about our, we sort of put it to ourselves. What are, what are our three favorite Pixar movies? And, uh, I, I, uh I had – of the three that we individually chose, we both chose two of the same ones. So outside <laughs> of that, we've got uh, – well i've got one and and you've got one and uh but i i really admire the one that you chose that i didn't because it's also amazing this was a really hard thing to do actually i mean if i had had 5 then it would have all been the same i'm sure but uh but anyway here it is my my uh one that i chose that you didn't is wall-e from 2008 directed by andrew stanton this is the wonderful wonderful story that is almost without dialogue in the first half hour it's set in a post apocalyptic world of garbage and there is this cute little robot whose job it is a garbage droid to compact the garbage that's there and organize it and um in his evenings he he watches an old musical hello dolly and uh and then The humans who are all off planet at this point, they're living in a cruise liner in space where they don't have to walk anywhere. Um, They are, and all of this is sponsored by a giant super conglomerate shopping uh, (laughs) uh, store called By and Large. Uh, Anyway, they send a drone down to Earth, a drone named Eve, hyperactive. Like Uh, she's, (laughs) I was trying to figure out how to describe her to someone who didn't know if Apple made sex toys that's what they, <laughs> she might look a little bit like. Um, and uh, about halfway point, the action shifts between Wally and Eve on earth. And then they go into space and, uh, and great stuff happens there. It's, it's an incredibly immersive experience. It's really hard sci-fi despite being charming and fun and light. It's also, there's a lot of darkness there when you consider this as a genuine post apocalyptic drama, uh, uh, adventure. And, uh, and it's, uh, but it's it's also absolute science fiction in a way that uh, is throwbacks to two thousand and one frequently, uh, a couple of throwbacks to Alien and uh, a lot of great science fiction. Silent and, Running, Silent Running, big yeah, time. absolutely, big time, um, yeah. And uh, it has also, as with all Pixar, a lot of laughs, including the uh, the ad copy. Too much garbage in your face. There's plenty of space out in space. BNL Starliners leaving
1: each day. We'll clean up the mess while you're away. <laughs> yeah, w- Wally is a phenomenal film, and, and I suspect it would be my top five if, if I'd done five. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get a chance to revisit. I, I, I do remember quite enjoying it when it came out, and uh, you know, love uh, love the message of the film, and, and uh, you know how it was able to portray it. Fairly, yeah, you know, fairly dark ideas. Fairly comedically, uh, you know, the very opposite ends of the spectrum, but it somehow does a really great job of uh, of combining those. And uh, you know, you really feel for little Wally, you know, on his uh, ongoing mission to, you know. Clean up and compact garbage. The the Hello Dolly thing I, I still find odd. Of guess, all the movies they could of, have chosen, you know, of all the yeah, like <laughs> you think it being Disney, they could have picked Mary Poppins and saved some copyright money. But oh. I guess I guess somewhere along the line, either with you know with uh, Andrew Stanton or somebody, you know, had a real affinity for that film and the message of the film, even though it's technically that was like kind of the film that put the nail last nail on the coffin of the big money studio musical films like hello dolly and and uh paint your wagon and dr doolittle and so on but uh but somehow he finds some uh some uh solace in in this movie and playing his VHS copy, I think, yeah, over yeah. and over again. I'm yeah. surprised he never did come across a, a Blu-ray or a DVD
2: of it. But um, yeah, and I don't know if I mentioned Eve's mission on Earth is to find plant life. That's right, which she does, and then it then that triggers the rest of the story. Um, but yeah, it's it's great. I'm really glad to have revisited. I really recommend you do. Now, Stephen, you also your a uh, film that you also was part of your top three, but outside of mine, but only just, just. <laughs> was Inside Out.
1: Yeah, I, I realize that with uh, two out of my three uh, films uh, in my top three Pixar movies are uh, are Pete Doctor uh, sort of driven stories, and I think maybe he, maybe my the back of my mind, I think that he's like the secret weapon behind the best Pixar movies, and that he's he seems to have the that balance of uh, of pathos and humor and, and, uh, and is able to kind of bring them together. So, so well, and, uh, Inside Out is, is, is a pretty unique film in, in the whole Pixar catalog in that it's about a teenage girl and, uh, the battle of her emotions inside of her mind. And it's most of the film actually takes place inside of her brain. It's it's, and the main characters are actually the emotions as they're portrayed by a quite a, quite a varied array of, um, of, of, of actors you've got uh, let me see I've got the list here Amy Poehler plays Joy uh, Phyllis Smith is, is sadness and plays her as kind of a, a a kind of a not quite a mopey goth but but certainly uh, you know plays up the, the kind of blue gray Eeyore-ish kind of nature of the character Richard Kind is uh is Bing Bong a character that they encounter inside of her mind. Uh Louis Black is anger, very well chosen. Very well chosen yeah. Bill Hader is fear, Mindy Kaling is disgust. Um you know, we have some some fun uh cameos, Frank Oz and Dave Goelz from uh from the Muppets uh show up as uh the guards of the subconscious. You know, there's there's a lot going on. Of course, we have John Ratzenberger, the uh the magic charm of Pixar movies who's who's also like the pizza truck. He seems to appear in every one of these. That's right. His voice is so
2: familiar to me now. I mean, if it wasn't already, thank to cheers, but he keeps showing
1: up in, <laughs> in key roles in all of these movies. Uh, I, and I think that, maybe this is the film that will most go over the heads of young viewers i you know the, the, we're, i mean they obviously did a lot of research into psychology and and the nature of the of the human mind and human emotions and there's a, there's a lot more going on than than most young viewers can comprehend but i think maybe in a way that this film is for the generation that grew up with pixar the ones that were little tots when toy story came out um you know, and grew up with these films, and you know the the same way that the classic Disney animated titles are ingrained in our cinematic DNA. The Pixar films are uh, equally ingrained in 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 a certain generation of viewers, and this film is squarely pitched at at those, uh, you know, in their maybe their mid to late teens, who are are, are coping with all kinds of anxieties and and uh, emotional flare ups and and and. Uh, and pressures that maybe you know didn't exist when we were in, at that same age that 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 are fully in place now especially as uh, Riley our main character her family's moving so there's a lot of anxiety about that and about the the fear of of uh you know a new world and uh having to make new friends and all that kind of thing um you know and the instability of their parents uh, uh employment status and all that kind of thing i mean these these are very real real world uh problems that that uh everyone in the audience is dealing with so there's, there's a lot to, um, there's certainly a lot to, uh, to, uh, sympathize with in this film and to, to recognize in ourselves. Uh, and it's, you know, unlike, uh, say in the analogies of Toy Story or Bugs Life or Finding Nemo or what have you, I mean, here it's very real. It's, it's very much kind of in the real world for, for Riley and the stuff that's happening in her brain while very cartoony and, and, uh, and also sometimes kind of scary, um, you know we can all relate to it there's a very dreamlike quality to the scenes that take place in the brain and and that kind of is what elevates this film uh, visually in a lot of ways And so I, I feel like it's this is a film that even on third and fourth viewings will reward the viewer with a lot more yeah. depth and insight not just, not just because of details of things packed into the picture but because of what's going on psychologically in the yeah. film i think you're right too it's a it's a very mindful
2: film you know and i think yeah. i think maybe maybe younger viewers could it sort of it takes the abstract and makes makes it concrete in a way that that who knows i mean I, i'm i'm no expert on this but I, I feel like young younger people in in the teens or tweens even might might understand what's going on with them if if as presented through the film and i yeah it's it's a remarkable uh work uh and it's yeah definitely high on our on my list too
1: well even yeah even young kids understand what feelings are and, sure. and i think that uh you know you, you could watch it with a child who's under 10, say. Um, but I, I'd say, you know, maybe supervised viewing. Yeah. Because so, yeah. I, I think a, a kid who's younger than, say, 11 or 12 that watches uh, Inside Out is definitely going to have a lot of questions. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's some stuff, you know, like especially with, with uh, Bing Bong, uh, you know, there, there's some, 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 not scary, but certainly worrisome stuff that, that they're going to have, uh, they're going to wonder about themselves and, and they're going to require some guidance uh, to get through it all. Um, now Toy Story 2 you mentioned it earlier Uh,
2: of all the Toy Story movies these are they're all great I remember the first one really well and I remember the third one really well but I also remember the second one which I don't the particular details of the plot sort of escape me i remember uh, zurg the villain <laughs> but uh a lot of the details had escaped but i remembered really loving it so i went back and watched it again and i and i realized of the three of them usually the second movie in a trilogy is the dark one but i feel like this is the lightest of the three uh it's also the most playful and uh it it's dealing starting it's still dealing with many of the same themes you know the toys really love andy they love. They want to be with him, but then the question is, what's going to happen when he outgrows them? And that's kind of now on the on their minds. Uh, at the same time, I sort of feel like the toys are almost. Uh, uh, they're almost surrogate parents to Andy. Like they love him so much, they want to be with him all the time. They want to take care of him. They want to. They want to give him love, and they want to receive love from him because that's the best thing a toy can uh, aspire to. But they're, you know, they're there to help him as well. And I feel like there's some of that stuff. That, there's stuff there for parents of kids as well. I think. Uh, but boy, is it a lot of fun. And and I, it starts with with you know with uh, Buzz Lightyear facing off against his arch enemy Zurg, who appears later again in the story when they they go into a, a, a giant Toy Story, <laughs> a toy, toy, toy barn. Story. But yeah, the toy, <laughs> toy <laughs> barn. <laughs> exactly, and uh, it is uh, it's a blast, um, and it's a it, again like the first one is. A, there's a large chase sequence where the toys have to go out into the world, which of course is very dangerous, and a lot of things could happen. And somehow they manage to survive despite having to cross like a four lane highway at one point. Um, and uh, yeah, and and uh, and there's also a bit in there about how toys are meant to be played with, not just collected, um, you know, behind, put behind plastic and that. And that's that's an interesting element of the story, too. I, I, I was it was
1: so much fun watching this again. I I do love so much about this film and that it, it's just got great momentum. It's exactly as long as it needs to be. I find sometimes some of these films are starting to get a bit long. I mean, Incredibles 2, I think, is over two hours. At it this is. Point, yeah. Or just barely over it. And I think, yeah, that, that they don't need to be that long. Um Toy Story 2 seems to have the right amount of momentum and, um, story points to keep us going without sort of overburdening it. Um, you know, the, the, the voice, uh, work of, of, um, Hanks and, uh, Tim Allen and Tim is yeah. buzz. <laughs> I was just, I just, all I can remember is buzz. Um, <laughs> it is it, phenomenal here, especially when like, buzz lightyear has to square off against himself yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah. a, a fresh out of the box buzz who's yeah. just as naive as buzz was in the first film yeah so i love that so it's interesting seeing like the fully aware buzz and and the sort of naive uh still thinks he's a space ranger buzz um kind of having to go at it um so you know so there's some clever concepts there of course as is somebody who collects stuff the the whole subplot about big al and and his collection uh uh, Jones, and and the amount of detail that goes in, you know, again it's not the important thing in these films, but the, the amount of work and care that goes into creating the world of Woody as a as a kind of Howdy Doody-esque public, because of course we don't yeah. really know anything about Woody from the first film. No. And then we find out he was basically like a Howdy Doody character with all kinds of merchandise and toys and, you know, promotional materials even. He's got the giant cardboard stand-up for the Woody Cowboy Crunchies mm. cereal and everything like that. He's got Bullseye the horse and yeah. uh
2: and the uh, Jesse the cowgirl played by Joan Cusack who is just terrific uh, and Stinky Pete the prospector. Perfect grammar. Perfectly voiced <laughs> by Kelsey Grammer. Uh you know sort of a, a cheers reunion you might even say in this film. Uh yeah and it uh yeah. It's just, it's, oh man, I don't even know what more to say other than uh, if you haven't seen it. Well, watch all of these movies. All the Toy Story movies are worth seeing, but
1: uh, yeah, this is, oh, oh I, I love the tour guide Barbie as well. Yes. She's great. <laughs> I mean, Cowboy Jess, Cowgirl Jessie is kind of like one of my favorite all-time Pixar characters. You know, she's just, you know, she's, uh, it's interesting, you know, Stinky Pete is trying to kind of protect her, but he's also, you know, trying to keep his own agenda on the table. And, uh, you know, she's got this whole complex world of emotions of, of, you know, having been locked up and seeing your old friend after so long. And he doesn't know who she is. Uh, and, uh, you know, having, you know, she's, you know, somewhere between young girl and mature female. And, and ha- there's that whole thing going on. It's a, it's, she's a pretty complex character and Joan Cusack is so great. Yeah. Uh, uh, as, as that character. In fact, I got to interview Joan Cusack by phone once. No kidding. W- when she made, um, I think she was in Runaway Bride. Uh-huh. And I just, it was a promotional phone interview and I got to talk to Joan Cusack, which, you know, was great on, on many different levels, but I yes. got to tell her how much I loved the character of uh, Cowgirl Chess. <laughs> <laughs> did she appreciate that? She, she really did. She, <laughs> that character m- means a lot to her, as it turns out. And uh, so that was, a, that was a real treat to, uh, you know, obviously I couldn't belabor the point, but uh, it was, you know, I'm just, it's not the sort of thing she's normally recognized for, right. I guess, you know, like yeah. how many people remember who does, beyond Hanks and, and Tim Allen who remembers who does some of the other voices. I mean, yeah. You know, but, she, but, she's, it, but she's they're also amazing. good.
2: We could do a whole episode on Joan That's Kimsack, true. I think. I think we should. I think we point. should. I think she, her character from, um, oh do 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 yeah well let's just save it we'll save it gross point blank (laughs) yes gross point blank yes there's one for sure but no there's 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 many more to talk about with joan cusack we'll save it for that episode uh but we need to wrap up soon because we're running out of time and we got one more film on our list which is up from 2009 pete doctor again with bob peterson and it's legendary for its opening 10 minutes or so, where we meet Carl and Ellie, two kids who idolize an adventure named Charles Muntz, Munst, voiced by Christopher Plummer. And in those 10 minutes, Carl and Ellie grow up and grow old, and Ellie dies, and it's just – it's lovely and amazing and heartbreaking. And then the rest of the movie begins, which is <laughs> Carl alone, um, and he ha- has this dream of going to this place called Paradise Falls, the last known – uh, where place where Charles Munts might have disappeared and and uh, he doesn't doesn't count on a Boy Scout showing up, he doesn't account on a talking dog or dogs that can fly World War One airplanes or <laughs> a giant prehistoric bird named Kevin. This is this is the Raiders of the Lost Ark of Pixar films. I think if if you know, if Indy was a senior citizen, and um, you know, it is it is wonderful and unpredictable and very funny, and somehow also about aging and grief and how we don't always live out all our dreams, but maybe that's okay.
1: Oh yeah, the stuff with Carl and Ellie at the start is rips my heart. I just thinking about it now, I'm getting misty eyed, and, and yeah, you know, it also doesn't help that like Ellie is kind of drawn. <laughs> and resembles my own partner uh, quite a bit in the film, and I know she's going to listen to this uh, at some point. But but that you know that really struck me when I was watching the film. You know, I felt like maybe I was watching my own life flash before my eyes while watching the opening scenes and up. Uh, but that you know anybody who sees that film is, is you know you get your heart ripped out. Uh, in the first uh, ten, fifteen minutes, and then and then it's all. And let's keep going with this story. You know, it's it's it's, it's almost like it has its own short uh, before uh, before the totally. feature, as it were. Totally. And, uh, Ed uh, Ed Asner is perfect as Carl. He is. Um. Nobody plays a grumpy pants better than Ed Asner, and <laughs> and and. and Every it seems like every the, the interesting thing about this film. Most of the Pixar films have a pr- fairly conventional arc. I mean, obviously they're they're filled with great characters and great stories, but the, the story arcs are fairly conventional, and and you kind of have a rough idea of where things are going to go. Um, you know, obviously there are going to be twists and turns, but but you know, you kind of know where you're going and how you're going to get there. Up, I think, is completely unique in that it you don't like it keeps throwing completely left turns at you pretty much every step along the way. Yeah, like, like you know the. the the characters don't necessarily all fit together it's it's like let's just throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks and amazingly it all works um you know oh a talking dog oh a boy scout oh we're going to go to this place that is essentially borrowed from the old silent version of the lost world um you know if you go back and watch it it's cuz it's set on a plateau uh just like the one in up um and the, the bird and it you know just it just piles on one unexpected detail after another and i think maybe that's why you know aside from the just the emotional content which is so uh so intense but but the just the unexpected nature of it it's 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 like a you know it's like a k-tail record of one weird thing that doesn't fit after one another but somehow the the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts
2: Thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears uh, and our uh, trip back through the great films of Pixar and uh, Incredibles and Incredibles 2. Um, you, if you want to reach out and find us, we are on Facebook. We're also uh, on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, Stephen and I both have Twitter handles of our own. what uh, what's yours again?
1: Mine is at NS
2: underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And mine is uh, named after my my blog, and it's at flaw in the iris. And we also have a Patreon account. If you'd care to uh, help us support this project as it's ongoing, we'd very much appreciate it. Um, you know what? And you can reach out to us and suggest uh, topics, uh, films that we should watch, maybe genres we should consider, or even uh, stars, creative people that we might uh, talk about on our show. Um, many, many thanks to CKDU for the use of production facilities and for playing the show on uh, Tuesday afternoons, every second Tuesday afternoon at five thirty. And also a big tip of the hat, the uh, computer-generated hat, to um, Village Soundcast Network for their uh, pulling it all together for us. Thanks again for listening, and uh, see you next time.